Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. This is the word of the living Christ. And we say thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Sovereign God who rules and reigns over the entirety of the universe, you have chosen in your divine love and providential grace and direction to seat us in this place, in this hour, in this season, in this year. It is not by mistake that we are here in this room and we pray that you would give us what we need in the preaching and in the hearing of the word of Christ that blessed messenger of your covenant. Help us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What is the final word before the period of waiting? Said with a little more detail, what is the final word of, if you will, the Old Testament? What is it that the people of God who'd been ministered to through prophets like Daniel and then eventually Haggai and Zechariah, the people of God who had seen part of Daniel's prophecy come true and seen the temple being rebuilt? What is the final word before a period, some 400 years of prophetic silence? Brothers and sisters, from Daniel to the manger, the final word is he is coming. He is coming soon. We find ourselves in the last book of the Old Testament. It's been now multiple years after Haggai and Zechariah. A period of decades has happened now since the temple has been rebuilt, since the regular rhythm of the feasts to include the Passover has been celebrated. And having seen the temple rebuilt, the promise of the Messiah coming is still at hand. It's almost as if Daniel's 70 weeks is continuing to move forward, but the Christ has not come yet. And in this period of waiting, the people of God have become tempted and in large measure have given in to the temptation to spiritual lethargy, to coldness. The people of God are waiting. The generations are moving on. But just like then, the people of God today often are prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. What we need in moments like that, what they needed in Malachi's day was the precious voice of God to constantly remind them of his covenant love and of our calling to him. 
Interestingly enough, in the last book of the Old Testament, the word covenant is used frequently. Well, let us then consider this God of covenant blessings. And we'll see here, as the people wait for Christ, and as we wait for Christ to come again, the final word before the manger, some 400 years later, as that the messenger of the covenant in whom we delight is coming. I want us to see three aspects related to the covenant that Malachi speaks of today. We don't really have the time this morning to walk from Genesis to Revelation to talk about how the work of God is a work that is a covenantal work. But just to remind you, in the Garden of Eden, God created All things and the pinnacle of his creation, Adam and Eve, were given a covenant, a covenant of works. Some people prefer to call it a covenant of creation or a covenant of life. I think it's just fine to call it what our reformed forebears called it, a covenant of works. Obey and live and enter into glory, disobey and die and fail to reach glory. We call it a covenant of works as opposed to a covenant of grace because Adam and Eve could have entered life by their obedience. But they failed. And all of us in Adam failed. And thus, from the very removal of Adam and Eve from the garden, there was the promise that the skull-crushing seed of the woman would come into a cursed world, now a sinful and diseased world. That the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would be constantly battling it out, but the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And if you're new to the Bible, that promise is traced all the way to the very last page. And as the Lord God continues his work of providence, he preserves creation, even when destroying much of it through a covenant with creation made with Noah. He gathers one particular man out of the Middle East and says, this promise of the skull crushing seed of the woman is going to come through your flesh. It's going to be through your seed that this promise of the skull crushing seed of the woman will come. And God covenants with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. And in his flesh, he carries, if you will, the sign that it is from his people that the Christ will come. The Lord God then takes of his family and turns them into a nation and gives them a covenant, a Mosaic covenant, with particular laws, particular prescriptions, all preserving this promise. He eventually gives them a king and covenants with David's household. There will always be a king on the throne from your house. God has been working from Genesis all the way to Malachi through covenant. And now, on these last few pages of the Old Testament, the word covenant is everywhere. And we read of the coming of the Christ, that he will be the messenger of the covenant. So, what is it that we ought to see this morning as we peer here into the New Testament? As we wait just one more week To read the words of the manger. Well, three things this morning. The first is this. Covenant membership is based on God's gracious election. 
Covenant membership is based on God's gracious election. Now, I know we started in chapter three, but really we're going to walk through the book of Malachi together this morning. Turn to chapter one. Verses one through five. There we read this, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Just let that sink in. The God who made all things. The God who carved out mountains and valleys by the very word of his power. The God who holds all things together. It's the God who says to a chosen people, I have loved you. A chosen people, mind you, who've been regularly disobedient. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished. But we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. The people of God at this point, by their actions, by their lazy worship, by the ways that they do not honor God's covenant, as we will see in a few moments, the people are speaking to God. God, you say you love us, but how have you loved us? And God takes them to their history, all the way back to Jacob and Esau. He says, the people of Jacob did not deserve the love of God any more than the people of Esau, and yet they received it. And in these verses, in the first few verses of Malachi, God again prophesies judgment on Edom. We spent some time in our journey with Daniel and talked about the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, one of which will be King Herod. God highlights his mercy on Israel. Now, some of you might be reading this and you might think the Bible actually says that God hates someone. And of course, in this context, what is being spoken of here is electing gracious mercy and love. God has chosen through sheer mercy and grace to give his covenant and covenant blessings to a particular people. And a lot of times what happens when we read the doctrine of election in Scripture particularly if we are in some kind of cage stage Calvinism or reformed kind of discovery, we get really excited about how the Bible says what it says about God's sovereignty. And that is good. And in some ways that is right. But we ought to also be reminded that when we question the love of God, God reminds us of his electing grace, which was undeserved. And this is an antidote to us when we find ourselves despairing in our walk with Christ. You may find in yourself a lack of current obedience, a spiritual lethargy, a spiritual coldness. And you might begin to question, am I really in Christ? Part of the doctrine of election that is helpful to you here is this. 
God has never chosen you because you will be able to obey in your own strength. Covenant membership, even in the old covenant, was based on God's sovereignty. God chose the people of Israel. He chose Jacob's people by his gracious election. And we need this reminder today. You see, people, both Jew and Gentile alike, who are in Christ, the scripture says, are in Christ because they've been drawn by the Father. Just a couple of verses from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We read there these words of Paul to the church at Ephesus, a largely Gentile church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I'd love to just jump over to Ephesians and preach Ephesians chapter 1. He made us accepted in the beloved. You don't make yourself accepted in the beloved. But covenant membership has been based. God's work of displaying his glory in the saving of sinners has always been based on his gracious election. And we need this reminder. But brothers and sisters, just potentially a word as we go about thinking on this glorious truth in our day. This word is anything but a hammer to strike on the heads of others. This word is a wonderful reminder of our security in the God who himself has made us accepted in the beloved. And when we question the love of God, we ought to remember, perhaps as we take Malachi's words and sift them through the new covenant. I have loved you, says the Lord. And sometimes we say by our actions or even the thoughts of our minds, in what way have you loved us, Lord? The living God then reminds us. That through nothing in ourselves, no precondition, nothing that we did as God looked down some kind of hypothetical corridor of time, by his sheer mercy and grace and the pleasure of his will, he plucked us out of dying people and brought us into his grace. The last few prophetic words of the Old Testament... I have loved you. How have you loved us? I have chosen you, though undeserved. Those same words apply to us as we wait for Christ to come again. We have more revelation. The covenant of grace has been brought to us in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet that theme is still applicable for us today. But, you know, as we think about how the word covenant is used through the book of Malachi, in addition to covenant membership being based on God's gracious election, we see a second thing. And that is really a large portion of 
this four-chapter book of Malachi, and that is this. Covenant gratitude brings obedient lives. Covenant gratitude brings obedient lives. Now, let me just let you in a little bit into the pen or computer screen of your pastor. This phrase was the phrase that I wrestled with the most. How do I say this truth without giving the impression that covenant obedience for us today in the new covenant is what keeps us in the covenant? Because that's everywhere, even in so-called reformed circles today. So I wrestled, how do I say this? Because what we'll see is that these members of the old covenant were disobedient to covenant responsibilities. We'll see it namely in worship, in giving of tithes, and in marriage. And so if we're just talking about Malachi's day and the old covenant people of God, we could say the covenant that God made with Moses required things of you. And if we put a period there, there might be a person or two or many in this room who might get the idea that as members of the new covenant, it is our obedience that keeps us in the covenant. But it is not our obedience that keeps us in the covenant of grace. It is Christ's obedience. Make no mistake, obedience is required for you to reach the shores of heaven. But the basis of you reaching the shores of heaven is the obedience of Christ. Your obedience is the sparkling fruit that there is a root that connects you to Christ. But the old covenant members, many of whom had faith in the coming Christ, many of whom who were outwardly part of the Mosaic covenant but had no such faith, they were shirking covenant responsibilities. And so as I reflected on this, I think the theme that applied to them and equally applies to us today is that if you are a member of God's covenant by his gracious election, out of gratitude, you will be seeking, although failing as you will, to express that gratitude through obedient living. Now, there were three areas in which the prophet Malachi had to address these Spiritually cold people of God. The first was in the area of worship. The first was in the area of worship. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say... In what way have we despised your name? There's a pattern of dialogue in the book of Malachi. You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? 
Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? There were improper sacrifices being offered. If we had time, we'd walk through the books of the Old Testament, specifically Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, to look at all of the requirements for sacrifice. We saw just a little bit of that last week. And the people in their worship were trying to offer imperfect animals for sacrifice. There was a cutting of corners of sorts. And notice we get a little bit of the heart behind the cutting of corners. For instance, verse 13. The heart of the worshiper who's trying to cut corners by offering faulty sacrifices was saying things like this, at least in his or her heart. Oh, what a weariness. It's so difficult to worship the Lord the way that he's prescribed. Brothers and sisters, we're not under the Mosaic economy. Christ is the final sacrifice. He is the forever perfect lamb without blemish. But as members of the new covenant, how often do we treat worship like this? Business as usual or cutting corners. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 reminds us that we, by our very lives, which ultimately is chiefly expressed in how we gather together on the Lord's Day, are to be people who offer what? Sacrifices. Living sacrifices. And yet how often is our worship half-hearted, unprepared? (laughs) But part of the problem with this worship was laid at the feet of the leaders. Look at chapter 2. There we read in chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. Boys and girls, Levi was that father, if you will, of the priests, of the leaders, of the worship of the people of God. Verse 7 of chapter 2. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The leaders of the people of God were leading the people in this half-hearted worship, worship that was cutting corners Verse 7 again says, The lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. 
I have given to you a class of people who are charged with making sure that you know and follow my word and they are failing you. And thus you following them are offering worship that is unacceptable. Now, brothers and sisters, yet again, we are not in the Mosaic economy. We are all now priests. I know many brothers and sisters who will be in heaven with us say that preachers should be called priests. We don't call them that because the scripture says every believer is a priest. But we do in the new covenant have leaders who are charged with essentially the same truth of Malachi 2.7. That the people of God, the covenant people of God should hear from them his law, his word, his ways. So this word for us, as we look back on their waiting, is also helpful for us as we wait. The importance of godly leaders being in the midst of God's people and giving them what? The word. We often have many expectations for other people. Presidents, police officers, school teachers, husbands and wives, and preachers. The chief expectation in God giving his covenant people a person or a group of individuals to lead them is that those people hear his word from their lips. And that wasn't happening. And so covenant gratitude bringing obedient lives was not occurring. Rather, the worship was demonstrating, Lord, we've kind of lost our gratitude. You were here last week. The joy that you placed in our hearts when the temple was dedicated, it's waning. Has that ever happened to you? You have moments of joy? And you'd love to just stay there, wouldn't you? You'd just love to stay there. Oh, Lord, just keep me on the mountain. A lot of times he brings you through the valleys. Now, brothers and sisters, a topic for another day. It's sometimes in those valleys where you are strengthened. And the next mountain is even higher. But wouldn't you just love to stay on the mountain, but you find yourself waxing and waning and being cold? Pray perhaps with the Puritan, Matthew Henry, Lord, my heart is unprepared to meet with you, the living God. Prepare it. Heat it up. That I may seek to worship you, both corporately according to your word and in my life. Covenant gratitude brings obedient lives, not just in worship, though, but also in marriage. Look, look at the continuing section, chapter two, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Again, I hope you're seeing that word covenant is everywhere. Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. I don't know if you see what's happening here. The Lord had prescribed under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant, by the way, that his people only marry believers. And the people of God are starting to marry people of pagan backgrounds and yet still coming to the temple with their offering of worship. 
Let's modernize it a little bit. I can live however I want as long as I'm in the church pew on Sunday. But in addition to marrying with unbelievers, there was something else happening. Look at verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It was the second area of disobedience among the covenant people. And it begins in verse 11 by a description of marriage. When I use the word marriage, when you hear the word marriage, what comes to mind? And boys and girls, on on behalf of older generations, let me just apologize to you now for the kind of filth that you are having to hear when that word marriage is discussed. But the Bible actually says one definition of marriage is, quote, Malachi 2.11, the Lord's holy institution which he loves. See, marriage is God's to give. And it's God's to define. But the two issues here of the people of God was intermarriage with non-believers and of divorcing amongst believers or covenant members. Apparently, everyone was susceptible to this. Because in a very close time period to this, we read in Ezra chapter 10 that even the sons of Joshua the high priest were party to this kind of sinful treatment of marriage. Brothers and sisters, we do need this word today, don't we? We live in a day when divorce is more and more rampant. And none of us is immune to the need to properly understand marriage and to properly work at it because it is an institution that the Lord loves. Ephesians 5 reminds us that marriage all along has been given by the living God to the entire world, that it might be a picture of Christ and his church. In the New Covenant, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, we receive the explicit command that believers are to only marry believers. And over the years, thankfully, it's only happened a few times. But one of the most challenging conversations that I've seen other believers who are seeking to disciple brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the most difficult conversations that I've seen occur is when one godly believer says, you don't have any business dating that person because they're not a believer. And the other person balks at it or gets angry at it or says, you're judging me. Brothers and sisters, it is not a suggestion. It is absolute wisdom from God that if he says, I love this institution and it's only for believers to marry other believers. If you're in the faith. Then you have no business flirting with the unbelievers of this world. That's not legalism. That's godly counsel. And if you are at a point in your life where you're considering dating unbelievers, let me just be clear, I have no one in mind in this room. (laughs) You need to repent and praise God that thus far he has preserved you from falling over into the cliff of intermarriage with an unbeliever. 
You may say, but I know sister so-and-so. She married an unbeliever, and look how that turned out. We don't sin hoping that God's providence will help us in the end. We obey the written word of God, and if he brings a glorious picture out of our sin, which he's done with me, we rejoice. But divorce is also something that's spoken of in the New Covenant. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 12. Brothers and sisters, we're at our prophetic best. I don't mean prophetic gifts. I just mean the witness of the church among the nations. We're at our prophetic best when we speak to the abominations of marriage in our world, when we actually take our own marriages seriously. And the people of God, 400 years or so before the coming of Christ, were not. Covenant gratitude brings obedient lives, and obedient lives are offering offer often lives filled with work and suffering. But, praise be his name, that many of us can say, ah, it's the institution that the Lord loves. And he's made it in my heart that it's the institution that I love. Worship and marriage, but also giving. Quickly, the gratitude that was not turning into obedience among these covenant members was that they weren't giving to the Lord. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Could just camp out there, couldn't we? Ever think about that? The reason that you are not consumed as you continue to wrestle with sin is that the Lord doesn't change. He's told you in Christ you will be saved and he doesn't change his mind. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Again, this dialogue with God. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not even be room enough to receive it. Now, let me just say very quickly, Malachi 3.10 is often used as an excuse to say that if you give something to God, he will give you material wealth. That is not at all the context of this passage. God is looking at the covenant people saying, you need to return to covenant obedience. Test me in this and see that as you obey what I've prescribed for you, there will be blessing among the community. What were the people doing? They were withholding what God had prescribed. Tithes and offerings. Or they were giving in a begrudging way. Remember, these are the same people that a couple of chapters before, God said, I chose you in undeserved mercy. Now, brothers and sisters, we are called to give of our money to the Lord even today. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, the Christian is pictured as one who is deliberate and regular in giving to the work of the local church. An amount is not prescribed there, but it's clear that it is to be a regular and deliberate kind of thing. In 2 Corinthians 9-7, it's to be cheerful. 
And in 2 Corinthians 8.12, it is to be according to what you have. So there were very clear prescriptions, numerical prescriptions in the Old Covenant. But that principle of giving hasn't gone away as we've entered into the New Covenant. There's to be a regular giving. How are you in your own giving to the Lord? Do you just love to give? Because of the gratitude in your heart. Covenant membership is based on God's gracious election. As you wait, Israel, you need to be reminded of this glorious, gracious election. As you wait, church, for the second coming, you need to be reminded. Secondly, covenant gratitude brings obedient living or lives. Israel, as you wait for Christ to come some 400 years from now and be placed in the manger, you need to be reminded that being a member of a covenant with which God has made you ought to make you full of gratitude such that you want to obey. Brothers and sisters, as new covenant members of his church who are waiting for that final coming of Christ, that principle is the same. The issues may be different. The prescriptions may be slightly different. But covenant gratitude brings obedient living. But hear that phrase. Covenant gratitude brings obedient living. Not obedient living brings covenant. But finally, as we walk through Malachi, we see thirdly, covenant hope is centered in Christ's coming. For this, let's look back at chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Now stop here for just a moment. The question is, God, the evil are prospering. Where is your so-called justice? That's the question that is answered in the very next verse. Behold, look, see, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Do you ever think about Christ's coming being an answer to the question, God, why are evil people prospering? The people of God have begun to question God's justice. And God responds by saying that he will send, in this one verse, two individuals. A messenger who will prepare and a messenger of the covenant who will suddenly come to his temple. The temple that has been rebuilt. The messenger of the covenant is clearly John, excuse me, the messenger of preparation, the first part of verse 1 is clearly John the Baptist. In fact, you can read of this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, where part of this text is quoted. One chapter over, Matthew 4, verse 5, calls him Elijah. Look there. Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That bold prophetic voice that Elijah had, I will send one like that to you. And he will prepare the way of the Lord. And isn't that what the first few pages of the New Testament say John the Baptist did? He came to prepare the way of the Lord. And who can forget that passage 
where John the Baptist looks and sees Christ and points to him that all who were around could hear it. There he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the messenger of preparation is John the Baptist. But then there's another one. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Matthew Poole, the Puritan, writing on this passage, says this, quote, That temple, which was the second temple at Jerusalem, lately built by Zerubbabel and Joshua, into which the Messiah was to come, and so he did. There old Simeon met him. There he disputed with the doctors. There he went to drive out buyers and sellers, and this according to what was foretold of him. And Haggai 2.7. And all the religious Jews who lived and died before the desolation of this second temple did believe and did confess that the Messiah would come while that house did stand. Suddenly come to his temple. Prophetic silence, as it were, for some 400 years. And then from Bethlehem to Nazareth to Jerusalem to the very temple, he suddenly comes. And this is the hope. In the center of this final book of the Old Testament, the hope is that Christ is coming. But verse 2 says, but who can endure the day of his coming? This goes back to the question, I think. Of chapter 2, verse 17. Lord, all the evil are prospering. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. What you do with metal, boys and girls, that's got some gold in it, but it's been mixed in the earth with other kinds of impurities. You put it in a very, very, very hot fire. And that hot fire heats all of it. And you're able to separate the gold or whatever metal you want from The impurities. The word of God says when he comes, it's going to be like that. He is like a refiner's fire. Like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. There's a weightiness here. John Owen says this, quote, It is no small matter to meet the Lord Christ at his coming. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. They were all full of desires of the coming of Christ. They sought after him. Well, he came according to their desires. He whom they sought was found. And what was the issue? Why, very few of them could abide the day of his coming or stand when he appeared. Many men long for it, delight in it. It is our duty to do so. But what is the issue? One, his heart is hardened in sin and lust. Another is lifted up as though himself were something when he is nothing. See, the coming of Christ puts all things into perspective. John the Baptist will come and then Jesus will suddenly come to his temple, the temple which you have just dedicated. And then as you continue to read chapters 3 and 4, there's a description in chapter 3, 16 through 18, in chapter 4, 2 through 3, that speak to the safety of those who trust in God. But chapter 4, verse 1, speaks of those who do not trust in the Lord. Malachi 4, 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. 
Well, the conclusion of the book, Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, help us as we summarize the final words. Verse 4, chapter 4, essentially says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Israel, as you wait for Christ to come, remember the instructions of the covenant that you are in. Remember Moses. But the very next verse, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's coming. Isn't it interesting that the covenant people who are wrestling with coldness and disobedience, who are looking around at the world and saying, the evil seem to be getting away with it. The Lord centers their covenant hope in Christ's coming. And isn't it interesting that the very last words of the Old Testament are, he is coming. There is your hope. You know what the very last words of the New Testament are? He is coming. There is your hope. Covenant membership is based on God's gracious election. Covenant gratitude brings obedient living. And covenant hope is centered in Christ's coming. Let's pray.